game, 8.40 here. So if you watch the news the last uh, five years, six years, it's seven years, it's just been dominated by Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. Now the question is, will the U.S. Supreme Court strike down that California, Colorado Supreme Court ruling that uh, removes Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot? And so will, will courts right, stop America's choices for who they can vote for for President of the United States is, you know, Donald Trump likely to be removed from the ballot in many states. Will the U.S. Supreme Court, in effect, make it uh, impossible for the next president of the United States? And so the news tends to be focused very much on personalities, and popular discourse tends to be focused very much on personalities. And if you watch my show very much, you'll know that I am primarily a structuralist. I believe that the structure of a situation, the structure of international relations, the structure of domestic politics usually counts for far more than personalities. So the way I look at things, Donald Trump is not the most important thing going on in American politics. It's what Donald Trump represents, which is a populist anti-elite trend that is going through throughout the first world. And there's there's some precedent for, for thinking that this is a very strong wave, and uh, most societies, you know, cycle through their elites, replace their their ruling class at various times, and we seem to be going through an epoch where we we are replacing or are on the verge of replacing our our ruling class, and and Donald Trump simply represents this trend, but attempts to take him off the ballot are very likely to exacerbate this trend. Right? It seems like the more people do to limit Donald Trump by bringing up charges against him. It seems that the stronger he's gotten. About uh, what nine months ago, it seemed like uh, Donald Trump was finished his announcement speech about a year ago that he was running for president of the United States in 2024 was very weak, right? It got uh, very low energy. It uh, generated very little excitement. And uh, it seemed like uh, Ron DeSantis was the hot new thing and that Donald Trump wasn't going anywhere. Now, you know, Trump is absolutely dominating the Republican field. And according to the polls, he's the most likely person to become the, the next president of the United States. So is this primarily about Donald Trump or is Donald Trump, and I'm going to quote here from Ross Douthat, his latest column in the New York Times, is Trump just an American expression Right, that's what I believe. Trump is just an American expression of the trends that have revived nationalism all over the world. Nationalism is the most powerful force in politics for the last 200 years. Right, so the more elites try to remove Donald Trump from the ballot, right, the more likely they are to heighten the very contradictions that have created Trumpism in the first place. So Ross Douthat says in the early parts of the Trump presidency, he essentially supported elite machinations. He wanted uh, Republican Party unity against Donald Trump. He wanted a Republican convention rebellion against his nomination. Then when Trump took office, he wanted a 25th Amendment option where it appeared that Trump was overmastered by the office of the presidency. And he wanted the 25th Amendment saying that if the majority of the cabinet of the president of the United States ruled that he's not fit for office, then he can be overthrown. But uh, at a certain point, Ross Douthat became convinced that these efforts were not only vain, but counterproductive. All right, the, the plausible moment for unified intra-party resistance had passed. Right? Elite institutions had failed spectacularly to prevent Trump from capturing the, the White House. And 
we appear to be living in increasingly and ineradicably populist, permanently Trumpian times. Right? We have outsiders wanting to become insiders and over overcome elite rule. We've got rebels and populist revolts playing out across the United States, Australia, England, much of France, Europe, right? And so the more the inside power players try to remove people like Trump from the ballot, right, the more dramatic you'll see these populist rebellions. So we'll probably get a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that will knock out these statewide attempts to remove Trump from from the ballot. And uh, here's an interesting discussion. This is Russ Douthat speaking in a New York Times podcast. I don't know. I feel like my views on this are so predictable that I'm trying to come up with something unpredictable to say. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of these efforts. I think it would be great if we had a presidential election where we just had secretaries of state sort of deciding like maybe the secretary of state of Wisconsin could put me on the ballot, for instance. That would be, awesome. that would, that would be good. Be I think I would do well in crucial. And uh, Luke Croft says in the chat, Trump should be arrested for his disgraceful behavior on January 6th. Well, what exactly was the most disgraceful thing that Trump did on January 6th? And I do agree that Trump's uh, post-election 2020 behavior was disgraceful, including on January 6th. But I don't believe that it rises to the element of a crime. He says, you know, we need to fight to preserve our country. Well, telling people that we need to fight is just universal political language, right? He didn't, he never explicitly called for the January 6th riot. I don't believe it was an insurrection. I don't believe there was ever a chance that this was going to be a takeover of America's political institutions. All right. It was, it was a riot. It was silly. It was ridiculous. And I I want uh, those rioters who attack police and who broke through windows and and created havoc, I I wanted them them prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I'm just unaware of what illegal action uh, Donald Trump took on on January 6th, saying that we need to fight. I I don't think that rises to the level of a crime. So January 6th was never a practical attempt to take over the U.S. government. I mean, how would you even take over the U.S. government Right. Have you seen or heard of the TV show Lone Survivor? It's based on the premise that there's an explosion or a plane crash that takes out the uh, United States Congress during the time of the president's you know, annual State of the Union address. And so all the members of the president's uh, cabinet, including the president, the vice president, are taken out along with the entire Congress, right, the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. And so there's only one lone survivor, and he, therefore, is, by the rule of the Constitution, he is appointed to, to power. And so one very prominent anti-terrorism expert uh, outlined this back in the early 90s as the most you know, prominent way to have, have a violent overthrow of the, the U.S. government if you just take out the State of the Union uh, Congress uh, address just uh, have some plane that, that went into that building and blew it up, that that would be, you'd take out everyone with the uh, dominant federal political power. But as, as far as any practical way of overturning the 2020 election, the, the January 6th rioters just never had a chance. It was an emotional response, I think primarily by Donald Trump, on the basis of ego, as Steve Saylor points out, that, that Donald Trump, for his ego's sake, didn't want to admit that he had lost the election. 
but it, it was it was never a serious uh, coup attempt. I mean, it was just a couple podcasts ago, in fact, that we were talking about threats to democracy and someone was talking about the way that authoritarian-ish political parties conspire to keep their opponents off the ballot. And I made some sort of joke about, you know, how oh, wouldn't it be terrible if someone was trying to keep a candidate, a popular candidate off the ballot? And I, oh, I seem to recall sure. everyone else sort of howling me down and saying, oh, that's just a bunch of nerds speculating on Twitter. And now it's not a bunch of nerds speculating on Twitter. It's the great state of Colorado and the great state. Your, your beloved state of Maine. My beloved state of Maine. My ancestral state of Maine. So, you know, I... I I'm not surprised by any of this. Ross, I, I get I, it. You're, you're pro-choice. You don't want I'm, some judge in Colorado or Maine telling you what to do with your body politic. <laughs> so I respect that. I respect that. I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to begin to respond to that, <laughs> yeah. Sally. Carlos, I mean, here's sort of a big picture. A deeper question here is just, do you think that the challenge to American democracy is just all about Donald Trump himself alone, this one guy, this distinctive figure, this reality TV show, proto-fascist, billionaire, whatever, and if we can just make him go away, things will go back to normal. Do you think that? Because if you think that, then I can see how you start to talk yourself into the idea that this is a good idea, and you say to yourself, look, I'm sure that a majority of the Republicans on the Supreme Court do not want Donald Trump to be president again. So why shouldn't they just wave a magic wand and get rid of him? Nikki Haley can run the table, or maybe DeSantis could make a comeback. One of them will beat Donald Trump. Everything will go back to normal. And, you know, that's sort of a view that I had for the first year or so of the Trump phenomenon. And I think, you know, I, I don't, I guess, I don't understand how at this point, with everything we've seen in Europe, in North America, around the world, that you could think of Trump as just sort of a force that you can just make go away and everything will go back to normal. But clearly there are people who think that. So that's yeah. what I'm interested in, I guess. Having, again, having thought that once myself. Yeah. Well, you've clearly been on a journey here with this, Ross, and I, it's I, a I long journey. You. I'm I sorry. You you know, it's a lot. I mean, for me, I think the thing that I'm sort of interested to watch how everyone is going to embrace and abandon their priors as the situation matches their political needs in this moment. I think that uh, that will reveal a lot about our body politic, which, uh, you know, I'm very pro-choice, so not an issue for me. But but first, like, let's let's just kind of talk through uh, a little bit these cases. Does anyone want to kind of make the case for the 14th Amendment interpretation that, that Trump shouldn't be on the ballot? Does anyone want to take that on as a thing that they would uh, would argue for? Can't be you, Ross. <laughs> it, can be, it can be me. Why not? The strongest argument is that the text of the Constitution is clear that you cannot hold high public office and the presidency, it should be said, is not specified, but let's assume that it's encompassed. Uh, if you have launched an insurrection or rebellion against the United States of America, this applied to Jefferson Davis and former Confederates. It applies, it should be stressed, if you have already taken an oath to the Constitution. So, you know, you have to have held a significant office already, but Donald Trump clearly held a significant office. And if you believe that the events of the 6th of January are actually an insurrection in the manner envisioned by people trying to exclude ex-Confederates from political... Hey, where's my sound? Okay, there's a lot of conversation about how Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. And what do you mean by democracy? Do you mean that people have a right to choose their elected representatives, right? Then keeping Donald Trump off the ballot would be a threat to democracy. But usually when you hear conversation in the news media by our elites about a threat to our democracy means a threat to our institutions, right? A threat to our traditional way of doing things, which refers to 
a dominant liberal left remaining in power with the, with the high ground in our culture, in our institutions, no matter who is in political office. Am I looking forward to a second Trump administration? I would prefer that to Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden has been an absolute disaster in terms of foreign policy, the worst American president in foreign policy in, what, 70 years plus? I can't think of the last U.S. president who was worse in foreign policy because he has created the conditions for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He has thrust the United States into the middle of this Middle East crisis and he has unnecessarily provoked China and hastening the threat of, say, a China takeover of Taiwan. So I think that uh, the Biden administration has dramatically and unnecessarily escalated American intervention overseas in ways that are generally not aligned with American interests and unnecessarily provoke conflict with great powers such as Russia and China. And that these threats, these escalation of threats due to the ineptitude of the Biden administration are so bad that I, I think that a Trump presidency would be far superior. I don't think you would have had a Russian invasion of Ukraine in, what, February of 2022 if Donald Trump had been president. I'm not even sure you would have had a Hamas attack on Israel October 7. And I, I don't think that we would have increasingly backed China into a corner as dramatically as the Biden administration has done. And so uh, on that basis, primarily also the Biden administration has been absolutely inept at uh, dealing with immigration, particularly illegal immigration. And the Trump administration essentially squashed illegal immigration and immigration in general into this country by 2020. So I think that's his greatest accomplishment. Right, let's get a little bit here from uh, Howard Kurtz. Already iced the rest of the field, trouncing his competitors like a slow-motion coronation. Washington Post. A growing sense among political veterans across the state that the basic outcome is set and a Trump victory is all but assured. And that view has spurred the television. We've been talking about this as if it's a real race, but so far we haven't seen evidence that there is anyone who's going to be able to steal this mantle from Trump. Donald Trump is still the front runner among Republicans. And any attempt by his rivals to sell themselves as reasonable alternatives are going even further down the tubes. If she does not have a strong performance, that could spell trouble for the, the end of her campaign. And once again, another opportunity for Donald Trump to really run away with this. If Donald Trump was an insurrectionist, he should not be allowed or able to run for office. And if he's disqualified, that isn't undemocratic. That, of course, a reference to the ballot bans and the Supreme Court late Friday agreed to hear the former president's appeal of the all-Democratic Colorado court's decision. Trump's also appealed to the courts in Maine, the ruling by the Democratic and highly partisan Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows. Nikki Haley still trying to distance herself from the uproar over her refusal to use the word slavery when asked the cause of the Civil War. The media is the only one that has talked about this issue. No, that's I, not actually not true. Not one person on the ground. I should have said slavery. I didn't do it. I immediately, the very next day, came out and said I was wrong. But fairly or unfairly, the press is now describing the contest between Haley and DeSantis as a battle for second place. I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Bo Okay, some great questions in the chat. All right, uh... Luke Cross says, without uh, liberalism, democracy will eventually die. You should be thankful we have our progressive priests to hold 
populist barbarians at bay. Yeah, I am not a populist and I'm, I'm not an elitist. So sometimes I think populism is right, such as the general revolt against immigration, right? I think populists are right. And also a, a popular sense that, you know, violent crime is out of control and that we should keep, uh, you know, violent criminals in prison for much longer. So in matters of law and order, Republicans consistently are more supportive of tougher punishment for violent criminals and for broken windows policing than Democrats. So law enforcement, yeah, is primarily a local issue in the federal American system, but a, a president who's more supportive of law and order, I think, would be better than a president who's less supportive. So I think Donald Trump, for all his flaws, would be more supportive of our police and of law and order than the Democrats. I, I can't think of you know any prominent Democrats who are tougher on crime and who are more supportive of long prison sentences and capital punishment for violent criminals than leading Republicans. What am I looking forward to in the second Trump administration? So I think it will be tougher on crime. It will be less likely to try to use federal powers to hamstrung local law enforcement. So under Democratic presidents, such as the, the Obama presidency, right, the Justice Department would go into various local police departments and force them to sign consent decrees, which would essentially hamstring their abilities to do their job. All right. Just surround police with more and more layers of bureaucracy. And I think Trump Trump administration would be less likely to do that. Uh, I think Trump was pretty effective on immigration by 2020. Yeah, he was able to use COVID largely as an excuse to stop immigration into the U.S., but Stephen Miller, his chief architect of his immigration policies, has proven himself to be fairly competent. So I think Trump would be better on law and order, matters of violent crime in particular, and slowing the onrush of immigration. So also, I think Donald Trump would be less likely to subsidize Ukraine and to incentivize the, the West, you know, throwing in with Ukraine, making it a, a proxy for a NATO versus Russia conflict. So Donald Trump was the first president in, in my, my lifetime that I remember, what, in, in 40 years, who did not engage the United States in additional foreign wars. So is it the Platinum Plan, the first Step Act, green lighting, the cleansing of Gaza, destruction of Iranian cultural heritage sites, tyrannical abortion laws, law and order tweets. So primarily, I think Trump will be better on law and order. He'll be better on immigration, and he'll be less interventionist with American armed forces overseas. Am I going to Australia this winter? It does not look so. He was brilliant during the Black Lives Matter riots. Well, on the one hand, you had many leading members of the Democratic Party who were speaking negatively about police and taking the side of Black Lives Matter. Trump was opposed to Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Matter's overreaction and instigation of all these riots almost brought about a Donald Trump second term. Right? Without the explosion of Black Lives Matter riots, I think Donald Trump would have been defeated much more dramatically in the November 2020 election. So law enforcement, yeah, primarily a local issue in the United States, not primarily a, a federal issue. Let's get a little bit more from her. And plays the race card. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump call each other a threat to democracy, there's other news about the Iowa caucuses involving Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. 
Fox News is hosting a town hall with former President Donald Trump. It is scheduled for January 10th in Des Moines, Iowa. And what about the CNN candidate debate? If you're Donald Trump, you have there's no reason to show up. So bad for CNN and the American public, although he's going to be on Fox. And that's the twist. Trump, who's certainly taking his jabs at Fox, is doing this network's town hall at the exact same time, 9 Eastern this Wednesday night, as the CNN debate, a classic bit of counter-programming and something of a rating showdown. Joining us now to analyze the coverage in Nashville, Clay Travis, founder of OutKick and co-host of a nationally syndicated radio show. And in Okay, back to the chat. So uh, Trump will give Israel even more power? I I'm not sure. I mean, the Biden administration is giving Israel all the arms that it wants. Joe Biden even flew to Israel. I can't, can't imagine any other American politician who would fly to Israel during a time of war. So uh, Donald Trump allowed cities to burn so he can get a boost in the polls. Uh, Donald Trump did not have the power to stop cities from burning, any conventional understanding of power. Now, if you have a more autocratic or interventionist in local policing uh, second term of Donald Trump, then you might have an unprecedented use of federal law enforcement officers to try to quell riots. And uh, will, will Donald Trump allow you know, Israel to level Gaza? Well, that's effectively what's happening here under the Biden, Biden administration. So the more thoughtful discussion here is on this New York Times podcast. You've got Ross Douthat. You've got Carlos Lozado. You've got uh, Michelle Cottle. Uh, and uh, one other female left. Political office in the United States. Then it's sort of an open and shut case. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the argument that has been made by conservative legal scholars. So what's wrong with that argument? Why not run with it? Carlos, do you have a. And a good challenge from Luke. So you're saying that Trump will actually be tough on law and order in the second term. I think this is cope. I think to the extent that a president of the United States has an effect on local law enforcement, that uh, Donald Trump will be more conducive to law and order than the, uh, the Democratic alternatives. So I can't think of any prominent Democrats who are more law and order than Republicans. But overall, yeah, law enforcement is primarily a local issue. So it's not going to be dramatic, right? Donald Trump's not going to stop rioting in cities, I would expect. But you're going to have fewer federal uh, interventions in local law enforcement forcing people like the Los Angeles Police Department to sign a consent decree, which just imposes all these layers of additional bureaucracy and additional paperwork, hamstringing police and restricting their abilities to carry out their work. So I think that uh, Trump will be less likely to impose that on local law enforcement. A counter to it? No, I mean, I'm, I'm torn. So Ross, you wrote a column about this recently and you cited, I think, um, Jonathan Chait's argument that, you know, calling January 6th an insurrection is a defensible shorthand, maybe in a journalistic sense, but is not really what happened. Um, he says Denver, Trump attempted to secure an unelected an second term. He didn't try to like seize manager. and hold the Capitol or declare a breakaway republic. Just because the 14th Amendment was created in the aftermath of the Civil War with Confederate officers in mind does not mean that any violation of the amendment must necessarily rise to the level of Confederate secessionism to trigger the amendment. I don't think that's how laws work. Laws against murder don't mean that the murder has to be committed just the way like 
Cain killed Abel or something. <laughs> That's a deep cut. <laughs> you don't, That's a deep you don't, cut. You don't, you don't have to be Charles Ponzi to sort of commit financial fraud. Mm -hmm. And to me, what the notion that, you know, this, this shouldn't apply, that it's not really insurrection bypasses is, I think, something really fundamental about the meaning of the country, right? Think of the oath of office the president takes. The president swears to the best of his ability to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Why is that? Because the Constitution is the country. The United States is not the United States without its system of government. Like, that's what we are. So attempting to overturn the Constitution is an attack on the United States. Trump does not have to seize the Capitol. Okay, that is huge. That's Carlos Lozado, a, a book critic, I believe, with the, the Washington... No, he's now with the New York Times, formerly with the Washington Post. So he says that the U.S. Constitution is the United States. The U.S. Constitution is America. And I just think that's bizarre, but it is a, a classical modern liberal perspective that democracy is primarily a set of rules and procedures and institutions. Uh, the idea that the, the, the American Constitution is what holds us all together, that's not good enough. Right? I see the U.S. Constitution as a reflection of a particular people, but it is a people's proclivities tendencies, uh, ways of ex experiencing the world, all right, and the extent that we work together at a particular time and place, I, I think that's primarily what the United States of America is. It's primarily a particular people in a particular place at a, you know, at a particular time in history dealing with particular circumstances, and it's our tendencies, all right, it's our talents, it's our ways of doing things. It's our folk ways that primarily bind us together to the extent that we do have social cohesion and social trust. All right. I think that's absolutely absurd that it's the, the U.S. Constitution that somehow holds us together. The Capitol building, the physical building, to be an insurgent. His attack on Congress was more fundamental than that. It was an attempt to render the legislative branch basically meaningless and subservient to the executive. So Trump does not need to declare a breakaway republic. His insurrection is against the very system of government he has sworn to uphold. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. And I think I have been, you know, I've been very... Right. And the two women on this podcast are on the left, and they too think that's right, that America is primarily a, a constitution. So here's an analogy I would give you. So go back to ancient Judea about uh, 2,000 years ago. And the Jewish sect that ran the Second Temple was the Sadducees, all right? And the Sadducees wore the gorgeous robes, right? And they conducted the sacrifices, and they conducted the pomp and the circumstance. And if you looked at them, you'd think these are the people with, with power of the Jewish people. But the, the institution of the Second Temple, right, and the laws regarding temple sacrifice— weren't the primary thing that was governing the Jewish people at that time, the most powerful institution, the most powerful group of people at that time were the rabbis. And the rabbis were just regular people. They carried water, they made shoes, they operated you know, small businesses, they didn't wear gorgeous robes, and they weren't you know, publicly visible wearing you know, amazing outfits presiding over, you know, awesome ceremonies. They were just simply teaching Torah, right? They were simply teaching people how to live. And so those who are operating the institutions, those who are on TV, right, and uh, those who, you know, are embedded within the temple, right, the, the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place, like the House of Congress, are not necessarily the most important people. 
right? People right, have predispositions, right? Different groups have different gifts. And it's the predispositions and the relative gifts of the American people that holds Americans together to the extent that they have anything together. It's not the, it's not the Constitution, in my understanding. I would say cool to these interpretations of the 14th Amendment, just because, you know, I do think that there is something about the American system that's built into the Constitution that is in some ways kind of anti-democratic, right? I mean, there are all of these things about our system of government that are safeguards against majority rule, essentially, right? We have a Senate, we have a electoral college, we, we have a Supreme Court, you know, we have, we have all of these ways in which we can protect the Constitution from the will of, of the voters. And I guess, like, looking at the situation that we're in now, and this is, again, coming back to this question of, you know, does Donald Trump represent a unique threat? Um, I think Donald Trump actually does represent a unique threat. And um, if you look at the sort of opponents that are arrayed against him and their inability to defeat him in the Republican primary, I, I can't help but feel that, like, if he were removed from the political landscape by some deus ex machina, that, like, I don't know that things would go back to normal, but I think that the temperature would change. Um, now, that's not a constitutional argument for doing it, but um, but I do think that in the context of our constitution and its ability to tolerate and its flexibility to rule out these questions of the tyranny of majority, I actually think that this is an idea that I could get behind. Lydia, the temperature would change and it would get higher. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, like I don't, I don't want Trump to be the president. The way I'd like... Can you imagine what would happen if the U.S. Supreme Court sides with the Colorado State Court and effectively removes Donald Trump from, from the ballot. You think it would reduce tension in American life and make it easier for Americans to get along? Or would it, you know, create even more tension? I think the latter. Like that to happen is by him losing another election. I'd much rather he be defeated in the polls than removed by some deus ex machina like this because people aren't going to sort of, you know, take that. Nor should they. We've we've talked about We've talked about sides? On, on the, Are you Ross, switching sides, Carlos? No, like I, I started See, off is, saying that I was, I was very torn wait. about this. Yeah. I was very torn about this. No, but like, here's the thing. So, Ross, you deservedly took a victory lap because the first thing I thought of when I heard about Colorado was that you had said on the podcast that this was going to happen and you, you were, you were poo-pooed. Now, we've talked about sort of definitions of democracy on the podcast. Like the rock bottom minimalist notion of democracy is a system that elects its leaders through fair and open elections in which the majority of people are empowered to vote for candidates of their choice, right? When I think of that notion of democracy, I think Trump should absolutely be allowed to run for president. When I think of a liberal democracy, it gets more complicated because liberal democracy is not just voting in elections. It's the protection of basic liberties. It's a strong civil society. It's an independent judiciary. It's robust adherence to the rule of law. We uphold liberal democracy with a constitution. So to me, denying someone the right to run based on a violation of a provision of the constitution does not seem to be anti-democratic if it's clear that the person in question indeed violated that statute. The whole point, as Lydia said, of having a constitution is you set guardrails around democracy to prevent mob rule. So did he incite insurrection in a way that would trigger the 14th Amendment by his actions on January 6th? I kind of believe he did because I watched him do it on live TV and because I read the Gen 6 committee report front to back. But I don't get to decide. If Trump is convicted in the federal January 6th case, I would be far more inclined to consider him ineligible to be on the ballot than I am now. So I'm coming at this from a kind of meaner perspective and looking mostly at the kind of gross practical fallout that we could be looking at. Look, I tend to believe that the Supreme Court is not going to uphold the Colorado decision. And so what my question there is, is the court going to provide any clarity or closure? Are they going to rule broadly or are they going to rule narrowly? My suspicion is that they'll rule narrowly so that he can stay on the ballots, but they won't be the ones calling any questions about whether or not he engaged in an insurrection. The odds that he is going to be stripped of ballot access in any meaningful states look pretty slim. 
And so my concern is that what we're teeing up for is a situation where he is going to use this, as he always does, as proof of his victimhood. It's not going to have a practical difference. And it's... Okay, so my, my founding text for today comes from a 2013 paper by Stephen Turner, philosopher of the social sciences, and it's called The Blogosphere and Its Enemies, The Case of Oophorectomy. So an oophorectomy is where you remove... What is an oophorectomy again? <laughs> where, where you remove a woman's ovaries, right? And it's a very popular procedure, and it's almost never done to, to save a life. But the, the evidence shows that tens of thousands of these operations are performed unnecessarily each year in the United States and other first world countries. It's a way for doctors to make a lot of money. And the evidence is overwhelming that this operation leads to reduced life expectancy. And yet you've overwhelmingly had medical experts that side with the massive number of operations for oophorectomy and you probably even know women who've had this. And uh, Professor Stephen Turner writes here about the blogosphere and its enemies, the, the case of the oophorectomy. So you've got the removal of ovaries, and then you've got the uh, removal of a, a uterus, right? And what's the name? The surgical removal of a right, hysterectomy, right? And you have tens of thousands of these unnecessary procedures performed every year. And uh, on the one hand, you've got a blogosphere that was outraged by, you know, these widespread unnecessary operations. On the other hand, you had the experts who said that they're, they, you know, perfectly fine, that they are good. So this is Stephen Turner writing, the blogosphere is loathed and feared by the press, by expert opinion makers and representatives of authority generally. Now, I'm speaking to you in 2024. Now, the vlogosphere, right, uh, doing live streams has become much more influential than the bloggersphere. So many bloggers have, have moved to making live streams like, like I have. So the implicit and explicit social controls that govern professional journalists and experts, right, do not apply to people like me writing a blog or making a live stream. And so this is thought to make the, the professionals much more responsible to the facts. And these social controls don't exist for bloggers, people who comment on blogs or people who make live streams. But there are numerous areas where bloggers and blog, blog commentators are pretty good at performing you know, various types of knowledge, right? Shedding light on things that uh, experts would, would try to tell us are simply not true. So a major topic in women's health and on blogs is the effects of the hysterectomy, right? The removal of the uterus, usually accompanied by an oophorectomy, the removal of normally healthy ovaries, and physicians make extreme claims on web pages about the lack of consequences or the manageability through hormone therapy, which they claim is supported by research. It is not. So you had people performing tonsillectomies, the removal of someone's tonsils. You had tens of thousands of unnecessary tonsillectomies going on for decades in the United States when the evidence was quite clear that these were unnecessary surgical procedures. So blog posters right, have detailed numerous damaging effects to these hysterectomies and oophorectomies, and they've effectively deconstructed the claims of experts. And they've done this on the basis of their personal experiences and on their analysis of the conduct of experts, such as physicians and nurses. And then physicians and experts provide their own critique of the blogs to which they attribute great influence. But a large meta-analysis and new 
long-term research affirms that the bloggers were right and the experts were wrong, right? So performing hysterectomies and uvorectomies leads to decreased lifespan. It's, it's now become clear. So you have 22 million hysterectomies are being performed in the United States. About 450,000 are done a year. It's the second most commonly performed non-obstetrical surgery in the U.S. after cataract surgery. It's effectively an economic mainstay of gynecology. And the numbers are similar in the United Kingdom and in Europe. So one in five women in the U.S. and Europe will have a hysterectomy at some point in their life. And this is almost always an elective surgery, right? It is a choice rather than an emergency procedure, right? It's rarely performed for saving a life. And the evidence is quite clear that these operations are in net bad for the people who have them performed on them, right? The evidence is strong. Oophorectomy, right, increases the risk of death from all causes, right? It increases the risk of premature death. Right, premature death, strong indicator of general health. And it doesn't really matter at what age you get the oophorectomy. So one of the major arguments for an oophorectomy is that removing the ovaries eliminates the risk of ovarian cancer. But this is a very relative, rare cancer. Right? The risk of dying of invasive ovarian cancer is about 1 in 95. The risk of premature death from an oophorectomy is 1 in 24. So the experts have been consistently wrong here. Right? They failed to deal with the long-term effects of oophorectomy because they did not observe it clinically and they did not conduct long-term studies. And their short-duration randomized trials did not detect the long-term consequences. So the women bloggers who talked about the damaging effects of oophorectomy and hysterectomy, they turned out to be right and the experts turned out to be wrong. So I don't habitually side with experts. I don't habitually side with the, the, the people, right? I, I think sometimes, you know, one group is right. Sometimes another group is, is right. But as I was getting ready for this show, I was listening to this uh, terrific, terrific song, which I, I can't find right now. Hang on a sec. It's just going to make his case for him and make it all the uglier and divide the country even more and convince the tens of millions of people who are teed up to vote for this guy that democracy and the system of American democracy, you know, they shouldn't have faith in it, that it is, you know, under attack uh, just as he has told them it is. Now, that's not a reason for this not to go forward, but it is why I am so very interested in what the Supreme Court, how they rule. Again, I don't believe that they're going to support the Colorado decision, but I do believe. So as I was preparing for this show, listening to Amazon Music in the background, I, I heard a track called Kitchen Disco by Sam Parker. And it, it was, this song came out in December of 2020, and it's a, a great song about populist revolt against expert rule. So almost all the restrictions of COVID were, were imposed along the lines of what was advocated by the experts. And here's the song. First, they closed the clubs. Then they closed the bars. Would you believe they closed the restaurants? Then they closed the schools and the hair salons. Can't go to the gym. They canceled the marathon. Got to stay at home. Can't go out. Nothing is new. Can't take the girl off the dance floor with what she's been through. Next, they closed the parks and the swimming pools. Of course, they closed the roller rinks too. Watch all of HBO, Showtime, and Prime, but she just wants to move in four-fourths time. So open the doors to the kitchen disco, sweep the floor at the kitchen disco, load the dishwasher at the kiss kitchen disco, 
Let it all go at the kitchen disco. Love this, love this little song about uh, expert rule. And I generally support uh, COVID restrictions. I think overall that the experts were more right than wrong about COVID. And I think overall our governing classes and elites did a, a better than average job with regard to COVID. And I think that overall lockdowns were, were a good idea. I'm strongly supportive of getting vaccinated for COVID. But uh, for people who think that we have all these inalienable rights, you know, things like COVID come along and, you know, all your rights just disappear like that. And so normally rule by experts is hidden. And so it's just kind of presented to us as a fait accompli. And we're essentially told that science says this, or the intelligence community has concluded this. And we don't usually get to see the conflict that goes on in these elite circles. It's just presented to us as, oh, this is the considered wisdom of experts. And what is usually pushed to us as democracy is really ruled by experts. In many effects, what we're told is, you know, democracy is really the opposite of democracy in that it is ruled by experts where regular people simply don't have the expertise to contest ruled by experts. And what many people present as how wonderful d democracy is, it's really all about uh, preserving rule by bureaucrats, where politicians will make laws, but it's bureaucrats who enforce the law. And so by following the dictates of bureaucrats, we're really being true Democrats. I believe that there are ways that they could make it more or less toxic. I mean, imagine if the Supreme Court ruled that actually it really is just up to every state secretary of state to decide if someone's guilty of insurrection or not and justified it with some kind of originalist interpretation. Maybe that would be a brilliant... Going in maybe that, that direction, Ross? No, 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 of course not. Right? No, no, but no. Maybe that would be a brilliant originalist reading of what this means. But it would be insane. It would if be insane. Happens, how long have... until a state Supreme Court or a secretary of state in a red state attempts to take Joe Biden off the ballot right. uh, due to the crisis at the border? Right. right? For, you well, well, the same this, 14th this, Amendment. And this is where I want to circle back, Carlos, to your argument about the president's constitutional oath. Because the reality is that, of course, presidents in large ways and small can be said to violate that oath all the time. Or at the very least, we have constant debates about whether this president or that president has betrayed his oath of office through claiming extraordinary powers against Congress, right? Presidents not named Donald Trump, presidents named George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and for that matter, you know, Lyndon Johnson Abraham and Lincoln. FDR and Abraham Lincoln have all claimed extraordinary powers over and against the legislative branch without being guilty of insurrection. The reason there's any case here at all, I think, is that there really was a riot. Trump did not explicitly incite the riot, but clearly encouraged it and liked that it happened. And you could imagine a world where there was evidence that Trump had personally planned the riot and that he really did want them to take Mike Pence hostage and make him vote a certain way. And that kind of would be an actual literal insurrection. But you can't get to that from what he did. What he did was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad. But it was not actually a planned attempt to replace the government of the United States by force. It just was not whatever else it was, as bad as it was. And I think that has to be the standard. Does it have to be by force? Well, yes. So the you the have standard to be, is yes. basically it needs to be it needs to be a like Confederate style. No, I mean, it could be small. It could like, be is that. No, is that it could the be standard? smaller. I think if Donald Trump had or not even smaller, it could be a different kind of thing. If Donald Trump had ordered the military to seize the Capitol building and declare him president, that would reasonably count. And what Trump what Trump was trying to 
machinate himself into some kind of weird 1876-style scenario where Congress would vote him back into the presidency. And that was bad and corrupt, but 1876 was not an insurrection, right? I mean, what we have fundamentally a problem here is the idea that whether or not he participated in an insurrection has not been defended, that that case has not been definitively made to the satisfaction of the majority of American public. And so you have to look, in addition to the legal theory, at the particulars, which is that even with the Colorado case, I think there was a lot of questions about whether they just kind of glossed over that whole, oh, well, he's guilty of insurrection, so he can't be on the ballot, as opposed to going through all of the nitty gritty of whether, you know, of proving that he was guilty of participating in an insurrection. Well, it's interesting, right, because I think there are sort of two points that, that bubble to mind as you're talking, Michelle. One is that, you know, the Times' own polling has shown that if Trump were to be convicted, that it actually could cost him support even among Republicans. Um, so actually being convicted of a crime could be meaningful to his electoral hopes. And the other thing, though, is that the, the qualifications for running for president are laid out in the Constitution. And, you know, you could be in prison. You could be a convicted felon. You could be, you know, any of those things. And Trump can still run. Right. So you can make a case with any U.S. president that he violated the Constitution. Right. The co Constitution is sufficiently large and the Constitution also encompasses all, all the laws made in the name of the Constitution. So it's not uh, hard to make a case that any president the you want to name has significantly violated the Constitution. So carrying on with this theme of rule by elites versus you know rule by the people, I want to talk about two important thinkers. One is Pareto. Vilfredo Federico Damaso Pareto, an Italian theorist of elite rule, and he's famous for the Pareto principle, built on his observation that 80% of the wealth in Italy belonged to 20% of the population. So if you heard, if you ever heard that, uh, twenty percent of the work you do gets you, you know, eighty percent of the the money, and eighty percent of the work you do only yields uh, twenty percent of the money. That's the Pareto principle. So he theorized about elite rule back in the nineteenth, early twentieth century, and then along came Karl Joachim Friedrich from a German Protestant family, and he became an elite professor at uh, Harvard University, and uh, he. He believed in elite rule. He believed in rule by bureaucracies, but he wanted to disguise it as being uh, pro-democracy, pro not, not pro-elite rule. So I just read an interesting essay on this by Stephen Turner. It's called Carl Friedrich in the Cancellation of Pareto, and it comes in this 2023 book, Vilfredo, Pareto's Contributions to Modern Social Theory, a Centennial Appraisal. So. Carl Friedrich was a professor at Harvard, and Harvard was particularly influential during the Roosevelt administration. It was the essentially became during World War II the academic arm of the federal government, and it played the role of an elite and the academic wing of the national elite. And Carl Friedrich was a member of this elite, both the German elite until he fled to America in the 1920s. So. He was a major participant in the grab for world power of Harvard during the period from the mid-1930s on, when Harvard University celebrated its increasing dominance, inviting in scholars from all over the world, until the 1960s, when the Kennedy presidency was essentially dominated by the Thought Brigade, overwhelmingly from Harvard. So Carl Friedrich's perspective on elite rule are really implicit justifications of his own status or denials of it.
So what you find with, with people like Carl Friedrich and among our dominant elite today is that the basic principle of democracy is, is hidden, right? It's not ruled by the people. It's really ruled by experts. It's ruled by a brain's trust. It's ruled by people, you know, at Harvard University. And you have support among elites for the ever-expansion of federal regulatory power which is directed by these expert leaders frequently coming from places like Harvard University. And these developments are not treated for what they are, anti-democratic, but as fulfillment of a genuine democracy. What is genuine democracy when the people essentially bend themselves to what elites want? So if you just follow rule by law, all right, then Hitler's rule was perfectly legal. But uh, people like Karl Friedrich and other elites would say, yeah, it was legal, but it was not legitimate because it wasn't based in, in reason. So from the liberal left perspective, we can reason our way to what is true and good and to what is the most efficient and effective method of government. And if you have a method of government that is not ultimately based in reason, not ultimately based in the Enlightenment, you know, if it's just based in you know, medieval folkways, then that is not rational, and therefore it's not legitimate. So anyone who's on the right, anyone who's at all trad, all right, uh, has less belief in the overwhelming power of reason and more belief in precognitive biases that uh, direct us, such as ties of blood, ties of family, and ties to traditional ways of, of doing things. So Vilfredo Pareto was an elitist. He says all societies essentially run by a small elite. elite. Therefore, he was somewhat anti-democratic, while people like Karl Friedrich defended democracy but were essentially supporting their own version of elite rule. So Friedrich embraced Kantianism, meaning that you can reason your way to what is right, and Pareto, Vilfredo Pareto ridiculed Kantianism and these doctrines. So what Pareto tried to do is strip away the rationality of the, the ruling elite ideologies and try to expose their emotional basis. So from a traditional perspective, much of what drives us is not rational, right? It's, it's ties to a particular nation, to people who are like us, to the, these primal drives that, that uh, go before the thought process. So Vilfredo Pareto believed in the inevitability of the rule of a few. And people like Carl Friedrich and today's ruling elite uh, ostensibly believe in egalitarian rule, but it's a fancy word salad to justify their particular elite. So Friedrich wanted to present himself as believing in universality, emancipation, and the power of reason to bring them about, while people like Pareto and the people who are on the right today we recognize and even celebrate the dark, irrational, and particularistic side of humanity. We recognize that we're much more likely to get along with and to be loyal to people like ourselves. And because we understand that much of what drives people is dark and often seemingly irrational, we don't believe that people are basically good, and therefore we want mechanisms to restrain human nature, and we believe that traditional ways of doing things and organizing family, organizing communities are better ways to go than untested ways of organizing families and community. 
So that's why trads support, you know, traditional definition of marriage by and large, one man with one woman, while moderns and liberals and lefties much more open to alternative forms of uh, creating families. So from Pareto's perspective, when you encounter an ideology, whether it's liberalism or conservatism, look for the underlying emotions beneath the ideology and look at the group that shares these sentiments and look at how it benefits them. So Pareto's analysis is probably closer to Freud or Jung rather than Kant, Immanuel Kant. So he, he sees our human nature, our, our residues or sentiments, and that is what drives us. And we articulate an ideology depending on a particular time and place to try to justify what suits our, our basic drives. So Pareto treated ideologies that came from our base sentiments as just variable responses to transient situations. And he looked at political structures as just the results of these sentiments and ideologies combined with a particular time and place. So these, for, for Pareto, human nature was, was fundamental and persistent, and ideology and cultural beliefs and explicit beliefs all right, are transient and derivative. So people like Carl Friedrich and today's elite use you know, amazing words to try to justify their ideology. They talk about what's functional, what's pragmatic, what's realistic, what's progressive, right? And it, it throws these, these word salads together and says this is what the American ideal of democracy, equality, and freedom is all about. But the content of these ideologies essentially reduces the role of the people to the role of man in medieval times where people are just a serf for expert rule. So rule of reason is very prone to slipping into overt authoritarianism in the name of reason. So from Pareto's perspective, elites, all right, our governing classes will always get overthrown over time because they tend to be populated by people he called foxes, all right, people who mastered the art of getting their way without force, right? And so today's ruling elite are largely composed of people who are like foxes, people who have mastered the art of getting their way without force. But these people tend to lack the talent and capacity to defend themselves with force. And so the people who overthrow them and replace them tend to have talents with force, and they could be called lions. So history is a graveyard of elites. And through the process of succession, through the application of force, one elite invariably replaces another elite. Now, an elite can prolong its rule by bringing forceful types into the ruling class, but there's a tendency for this not to happen and for the lions to replace the foxes, to replace the old governing classes. And there is this circulation of foxes and lions, foxes and lions. So governing classes become corrupt, and eventually they are replaced if they are not open to outside talent, which would have to come, by definition, from outside the governing classes. So normally, governing class from Vilfredo Pareto's perspective, inevitably becomes more closed, more fox-like, and more vulnerable to challenge from below, which I think is a pretty fair analysis of what's happening in the world today, particularly in first world countries. So you can look at uh, Abraham Lincoln, for example, who is an outsider to the foxes who dominated late antebellum American politics and who had failed to save, solve the slavery question. And Abraham Lincoln developed a following that transformed the federal system after his death with the application of lions, right? the application of military, the application of force, who took over government and expanded the federal government 
but were then inevitably followed by people who had personalities like foxes. Okay, let me catch my breath here. David Perwaze's patients. Jury convicted the Chesapeake OBGYN of performing unnecessary surgeries on his patients to get millions of dollars in insurance money. Thanks for watching 13 News Now at 6. I'm David Allen. And I'm Janet Roach. Megan Shin is live at the Norfolk Federal Courthouse with details. Megan. Janet David, we saw Dr. Shavid Perways escorted away in handcuffs, and we know that the federal court had 61 charges against him that the jurors had to go through and make a vote on, a decision on unanimously, and they came back charging him with 52 out of those 61 charges. The jury and attorneys had the tedious process of going through 800 pieces of evidence and hearing countless hours of testimony. Now Dr. Javid Perways will spend years behind bars for using women's bodies to get millions of dollars from insurance companies over the last decade. Today, the jury found Perways guilty of 52 federal charges, not guilty on eight and no verdict on one count, which the court agreed to dismiss later. Dozens of charges. So... What's interesting here, the importance of this story is that this guy is just doing exorbitantly to a much greater extent what, what hundreds, even thousands of doctors are doing within the system, right? Performing unnecessary surgery to make money from insurance companies at the expense of the best interests of their patients. He will now serve time for were linked to claims from his former patients. Many of them took the stand during the trial. That includes Darielle Bishop. It's hard to sit in front of someone that has done so many surgeries on you and that you have, you found out like it's so many lies that are in your record. She says she went to Perways for a tubal ligation surgery with the expectation she could have a reversal surgery and kids later. I do know that um, out of pocket I have to pay $7,500 for my now she's tried over and over again to have kids. Right, thousands of American women receive these unnecessary surgeries, oophorectomies and hysterectomies, the removal of healthy ovaries and a uterus. All right, thousands, tens of thousands of American women have these surgeries performed on them because the medical elite says this is what they should do, even though it lowers their life expectancy, reduces their ability to have sexual pleasure. It's clearly against their best interests, but doctors get to make millions of dollars from performing these unnecessary surgeries. So it hasn't been a successful pregnancy. During the court case, each patient with a story like hers went by their first and last initials. The jury found Perways guilty in DB's claim for a false statement in healthcare matters. I think it's great. I think it helps us make them have somewhat. So he, he went too far, but well, good afternoon, wavy.com and wavy Facebook page. I am Jason Marks here in the studio. We're talking the patients versus Perways on this gorgeous Friday, and hopefully it's going to be a gorgeous weekend, as Casey LaHecka just told us over on wavy.com. Now, before we get to looking at chapter six, let me bring in uh, the rest of the team here and, and show you who is, does the magic behind the scenes. And we're talking about executive producer Adrian Mayfield. And there you see photojournalist Kevin Rahm, who is when he said you had cancer. I was scared. I cried. I was nervous, you know, and I was so mortified. 
It was very a scary situation for me. Who are you and how long were you a patient of Dr. Puez's? My name is Tabitha Johnson and I was a patient for approximately seven years with Dr. Puez. Most of my family used him as a physician and so I just, you know, felt more comfortable with him because my family was going to him for years. So that is uh, part of Chapter 5. You just saw Tabitha uh, there. She was on the Dr. Oz show, and I think they taped that last March, and then obviously we all uh, were impacted by, by COVID, and that's when we talked to her a little bit after that. Uh, guys, uh, we got into Chapter 5, and this is where we're starting to get into the surgeries. And these are the really invasive surgeries, and this is where really the heartbreaking story comes about, Adrian, because now we're starting to hear about the hysterectomies and surgeries that women never even consented to. Yeah, Jason, these are really moving stories. We talked with several women who say that they had surgeries they believed were unnecessary, but in Chapter 5, you're going to hear from a few women who didn't even know what type of procedure they were going to have before they had it. Um, I don't want to give too much away because I want you to go watch it, but... Tabitha Johnson and Dana Chesham didn't find out until later that they had had vital reproductive organs removed without... Right, well, tens of thousands of American women have vital reproductive organs removed against their best interests, against their their life expectancy, against their their future sexual pleasure and emotional and physical well-being, right? Because the experts have manipulated the system so that they can profit Right, at the cost of robbing women of their, their vital organs. So sometimes the experts act in your best interest, sometimes they, they don't. And uh, certainly pays to have you know, skepticism of, of those who wield power. So remember when Elon Musk uh, took over Twitter? And this is fitting with my, my theme of expert rule. Because the experts have been unanimous that Elon Musk, you know, taking over Twitter has been a bad thing. But to me, Twitter is a much better place since Elon Musk took it over. And I think Elon Musk has said a lot of stupid things. He's done stupid things with, with Twitter. But overall, it's a much better place. I remember when there was talk of Elon Musk taking over Twitter, Richard Spencer made all these predictions. He said it wouldn't wouldn't change Twitter, that Elon Musk was a was a clown that Elon Musk was, you know, a scam artist. And what was the basis for Richard Spencer's analysis? He'd watched some YouTube videos. So I think, you know, Elon Musk is definitely a, a flawed individual, but he hasn't become the world's richest man by just running a scam. He's provided a genuine value, started you know, important companies such as Tesla, right? He's done important work, but there are ways that uh, Richard Spencer and Elon Musk are frighteningly similar and that is in their abuse of drugs. I don't know if you remember back in 2014, 2015, when Richard Spencer was rising to prominence, you had a lot of commentary online that this was a man who abused drugs and alcohol and should not be trusted. And front page of Wall Street Journal today talks about how Elon Musk you know, uses illegal drugs and worries a lot of the leaders at Tesla and SpaceX. So Many of his uh, board members fear Elon Musk's use of drugs, including LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, mushrooms, and ketamine. Uh, not a good sign that Elon Musk is you know, using all these illegal drugs. And it's probably the simplest explanation for much of Elon Musk's 
you know, completely bizarre behavior. So we, we've carved out, you know, one exception to elite rule on social media, and that's the platform X. Unfortunately, it, it's run by someone who clearly abuses drugs and not a good sign for the future of X or the future of any of Elon Musk's companies. Blind. The risk is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And as we saw at the beginning, some concerns. Okay, this is a video on the fall of Russell, Russell Brand. Conspiracies do turn out to be true, and they weren't reported on either. So, is there any other way to separate fact from fiction? History is full of conspiracies, but they tend to be limited. A small group of people with a limited set of goals. Most conspiracy theories have turned out to be wrong, or at the very least, there's little evidence for. Vaccines don't cause autism. Obama was born in the US. The Earth is not flat. Witches weren't conspiring to encourage the harvests to fail. Jews weren't conspiring to take over the world in Weimar, Germany. But the idea that there's some kind of agenda to take over the world that connects dots between disparate events is as old as time. And they've usually turned out to be wrong, or at least, as we'll get to, miss the real point. Some have been speculating that the real estate bubble in 2020 and into 2021 is the start of the global elite's Great Reset agenda. Now you're interested. In the middle of the 19th century, it was a common belief in America that the Catholic Church and the monarchies of Europe were not only uniting to destroy the US, but had already infiltrated the US government. One Texas newspaper declared that it's a notorious fact that the monarchs of Europe and the Pope of Rome are at this very moment plotting our destruction and threatening the extinction of our political, civil and religious institutions. So, yeah, I, I grew up with a great deal of conspiracy theories about Roman Catholics. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, and I heard you know, 20 times more, more negative theories about Roman Catholics and the Pope than I did about Jews and rabbis and Zionists. All right, uh, on the similar theme of uh, elite rule, got a New York Times article here. As Eli Lilly wades into telehealth for weight loss, doctors are wary. All right, so the maker of these various weight loss drugs. Eli Lilly has launched a new platform to connect patients and prescribers. So it launched a new platform called Lilly Direct, which connects people with an independent telehealth company that prescribes obesity medications as well as third-party services that can fill prescriptions, send them directly to a patient's home. So the only reason that I finally got uh, diagnosed with ADHD is that I found a way to do it through telehealth. Right? If I had had to jump through a whole bunch of hurdles I would not have bothered. And getting ADHD medication, I found to significantly improve the quality of, of my life, significantly improve the quality of my work. I really enjoyed discovering, you know, what my mind works like with, you know, a little bit of Adderall. I just have a greater ability to sustain attention and I don't find my mind skipping over, you know, all sorts of different options. So... I know that uh, Adderall is essentially a methamphetamine, but for people with ADHD, it acts in a way that kind of calms you down. 
But if there weren't all these telehealth opportunities to get diagnosed for ADHD, I probably wouldn't have you know, gone to the trouble of getting this. I know people have had to jump through enormous numbers of hurdles as an adult to try to get diagnosed with ADHD. And now we have these highly effective obesity medications. But again, many people just don't want to jump through all the, the hurdles of, of getting a traditional prescription for obesity medication. So we have a rise of telehealth companies that make it a lot easier. Now, you have doctors who are alarmed, right? New York Times here. Some healthcare experts and doctors worry that offering medication straight through a drug maker may make it easier for pharmaceutical companies to target patients with their products, regardless of whether that medication is the right treatment for a particular individual. This is just an evolution of direct-to-consumer advertising, and if people go through these telehealth portals, they may not end up with the most appropriate treatment or hear about other options. It's disingenuous to think that people are just going to get this totally neutral, balanced care. Well, it's disingenuous to think that if people go to a doctor, they're just going to get totally neutral, balanced care. So doctors frequently don't like these telehealth operations that takes you know, power out of their hands. And uh, I'm sure many of their criticisms of these telehealth operations are valid, right? But no one is just totally neutral and balanced, right? We all have, have an agenda. So I, in general, like the increase in options, whether it's telehealth or doctors or nurse practitioners, because I look at the world and I see the professions and it strikes me that virtually all professions, whether it's accountants or dentists or, or doctors or lawyers, are primarily out to increase their own power and their own income and their own prestige and the welfare of the public in general is of secondary concern. Adam Smith wrote in The Health of the Wealth of Nations in 1776, right, that uh, businessmen s seldom get together without c forming some conspiracy to defraud the public. So here we have the American College of Physicians stating that they are concerned by the development of websites that enable patients to order prescription medications directly from the drug maker, right, because it cuts out their, their group as the kingmaker. Right? This isn't medicine, says one professor. Medicine shouldn't be a consumer good and treatment shouldn't be commodities. They don't want the loss of power, they don't want the loss of prestige, and they don't want the loss of income. So doctors want to reduce the ability of, of people to have choices to get prescription medication. They want to reduce the power of nurses, of uh, nurse practitioners, of uh, you know, any other profession that threatens their turf. So ideologies from Wilfredo Pareto's perspective are elaborations of our primal drives for a particular time and a particular place to kind of justify our power, our income, our elite status, right? And at varying time, varying places, uh, varying elites come up with you know varying ideologies to justify what are you know base drives to power and income. We have the best reasons for believing that corruption has found its way into our executive chamber and that our executive head is tainted with the infectious venom of Catholicism. Before that, it was the Illuminati who, according to one book in 1797, were formed for the express purpose of rooting out all the religious establishments and overturning all the existing governments of Europe. 
In an influential 1964 article, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, Richard Hofstadter points out that throughout history that Okay, I can't stand this book. Let me fast forward. ...functions here is between phrases like an agenda and conspiracy. Brand, while defending himself as not being a conspiracy theorist, tends to use terms like agenda, or they a lot, or things like the global elite. The difference between purposeful collusion across institutions in secret uh, with an evil plan and a pattern of, say, certain values aligning between corporations and neoliberal politicians. Sometimes the difference between the two is a gradient more than black and white. But another way we can untangle this is to look at studies about who believes in conspiracies and for what reasons. First, a lot of people believe in them. One third believe Obama is not American, a third that 9-11 was an inside job, a quarter that Covid was a hoax, 30% that chemtrails are somewhat true, and 33% believe that the government are covering up something about the North Dakota crash. Never heard of it? That's because researchers made it up. They polled people about their beliefs in conspiracies and included a completely made-up event in North Dakota, and people instinctively believed that the government was hiding something about it. People are naturally suspicious of power, which is, of course, a good thing. But for some people, that leads to a belief in conspiracy. Why? Well, there are several factors that psychologists have looked at. The first is uncertainty. Psychologist Jan Willem Pruin points out that at a fundamental level, conspiracy theories are a response to uncertainty. He writes, Conspiracy theories originate through the same cognitive processes that produce other types of belief, e.g. New Age, spirituality. They reflect a desire to protect one's group against a potentially hostile outgroup, and they are often... Okay, we've got the college football playoffs coming up on Monday night, and there's a terrific article in the Wall Street Journal about turnaround artist Jim Harbaugh. Like, Jim Harbaugh comes in, and he makes teams better. Right? Stanford was 1-11 before Jim Harbaugh became the head coach, and he just completely turned, turned the program around. San Francisco 49ers were a joke. He came in and led them to three straight NFC championship games. Jim Harbaugh then took over at Michigan, and now he's got Michigan playing for the college football playoff championship. Like, how does he do this? And uh, he's just competent, all right? He sets high standards for teams. He demands that his players meet these high standards. And that's one thing that struck me when Jim Harbaugh took over the San Francisco 49ers is they suddenly just played like a well-coached team, right? He makes winning sound simple. Work hard, get better every day, watch that improvement compound. And the uh, first and most important task for any turnaround leader is restoring confidence. And lightning bolts of confidence burst out of the guy. So if you've worked for a highly competent boss and a less competent boss, right? <laughs> obviously, the more competent the boss, the better you feel, right? When, you, when you're working for someone who knows what they're doing, it, uh, it fills you with, with more strength. So Jim Harbaugh believes in himself, instills such confidence in his players, and uh, makes them want to run through a brick wall for him. 
I mean, he's got incredibly impressive track record. You know, he's relentlessly positive. He has unshakable confidence. It's easy to make fun of, but he just consistently wins. He identifies the problems and recruits people who can solve them. So he takes over struggling program after struggling program, and uh, teams start winning. So maybe, maybe there are things to be learned from uh, Jim Harbaugh. And I think uh, Michigan are strong favorites for Monday night's game. I expect that uh, Jim Harbaugh is going to move to the National Football League. I'd like to see him take over the Los Angeles Chargers so I can watch him work his wonders here in L.A. I think he's 61, but he just has so much energy. And you just can't, can't accomplish anything great in life without energy. What's the primary source of energy? It's not Adderall. It's not Modafinil, right? It's getting on the same page with people. That's what Jim Harbaugh does. He connects with his players. They create a shared reality. They build a rhythm in that shared reality, creating energy between the two of them that builds and builds, develops an ethic and a commitment between each other, increases group cohesion and group solidarity. Right? And with that, that energy and commitment and rhythm, right, they build something great. And you see this with, with great bosses. They know how to get on the same page with people and then create a rhythm with those people. And then out of that comes increased energy and increased commitment. So Jim Harbour, just incredibly impressive. A lot of people have asked me on, on this channel what I think of Stoicism. And I think I've remarked that Stoicism is a popular philosophy for the depressed. Right, So I think there's some wisdom to be gained from Stoicism, but it's deeply flawed and is particularly attractive to, to those who are depressed. I, I agree with these critiques. can and can't control is that on closer inspection, it becomes a little hazy. There are some things we have some control over, some things we could have control over, some things we can't control right now, but someone else could, and we could have some influence over them, for example. Some things we could have control over if we thought... Right, so in 12-step you hear, well, we, you know, we focus on the things that we can control and we don't worry about the things that we don't control. But he's making the point here that it's not always clear through a way of doing so. Some things we didn't have control over in the past, but could have in some way in the future. Epictetus might tell me, for example, that I have no control over how many people will like this video. I only have control over how much effort I put into it. Which sounds good, sure, but actually that means I do have some control over how many people like it. If I put more effort into it in some way, if I learn in the right ways from past mistakes, if I look earnestly and deeply into the camera lens, into your eyes and say, remember to like, maybe more will, although that was a little bit creepy on second thought, at least please don't switch off. But you see the point. There are lots of things I can do to control what the Stoics call an external factor. This is true with everything. You might say you have no control over the people around you, your health, the media, political decision-making, nature, but everywhere you look, in some small way, you do, by engaging in small actions, convincing, arguing, building, engaging. Everywhere you look, that line between what you can and cannot control blurs. 
On closer inspection, it looks like it's not a distinct or even real line at all. The division comes out of the thought of Zeno of Citium, the very first Stoic who set up his school of the Stoa in Athens in 301 BC. In trying to figure out what was truly good, Zeno looked at things that came from the external world, food, wealth, belongings, things like looks and talents that we're born with and so are still out of our control, still an external, and saw that all things could be used for good or bad so they could not be considered categorically and universally good in themselves. None of them, talents, wealth, power, food, can be consistently depended on either. They come and go, they're fleeting. The only thing that decides whether things are used or misused is, that we do have control over, is our reason, our virtue, our good nature, all the rest. The external we should, he said, be indifferent to. But again, on closer inspection, this neat dividing line becomes blurry. The problem is that it's difficult to argue that we should be indifferent to things external to us and acknowledge that they're useful to us. Because as much... So this this teaching, you should just focus on the things you can control. Don't worry about the things you, you don't control. Right, a little bit of this teaching is useful, but if you take it as an absolute, not not useful. This notion that you shouldn't care what other people think about you, it's impossible. We can't help but compare ourselves to others, but we can do it in a way that's adaptive and serves us. So we look to what other people are doing to try to get cues for appropriate behavior for ourselves and to try to increase the, the power of our connection with others. Or you can look at how other people are doing and beat yourself down because you're not accomplishing what, what they are. So you can use comparison to serve you, you can use comparison to destroy yourself. It would be nice if we weren't dependent on them. We are dependent on food, shelter, relationships, and so on. And so Zeno had to say that we had to be both indifferent to them, that they're external and out of our control, and class them as what he called preferred indifference, that we should prefer to have them if we can. As a result of this, the Stoic system comes up against a problem. In trying to categorise things as external and arguing for indifference to them, the philosophy has no way of truly valuing some things rather than others. It cuts the world off with a Stoic guillotine. If you acknowledge a connection to something as part of yourself, your identity, your way of life, you're dissolving that neat line the Stoics tried to construct. Okay, I think that's uh, an important critique of uh, Stoicism. All right, I've been I've com- completed reading a new book by Marty Baron, the former editor of the Washington Post. Right, it's called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. So Marty Baron is very much a conventional liberal. And uh, remember Donald Trump's remarks that were publicized near the end of the 2016 election, how he said that uh, he just starts kissing women. When you're a star, they let you do it. I just grab them by by the pussy. And uh, Marty Barron describes these remarks as grotesque, right? And they're definitely vulgar, but if you've you know ever heard guy talk or locker room talk, I mean, this is pretty pretty co- common type of male conversation. So 
if you call these remarks grotesque, then you know what you call, say, real uh, rapists and uh, child abusers. I mean, are they really, really grotesque? So Barron, Marty Barron, former editor of the Washington Post, he consistently lacks any appropriate sense of proportion. Naughty words are considered grotesque and Russia interfering in the American 2016 election. This is super important, even though there's no evidence that Russian interference was decisive in the U.S. 2016 presidential election. But Marty Barron, in large part, has achieved his success in journalism by mirroring the sentiments of his peers. And so Marty Barron writes that Trump was boasting of sexual assault. No, Trump was boasting about moving aggressively on women who wanted to have sex with a star. Right? He wasn't talk about, talking about assaulting women who had no interest in sex with him or with any star. Then after Donald Trump was elected, Marty Barron writes about the depressed state of the Washington Post newsroom. He, he writes, the gravity of the evening set in. This election would be historic, but not in the way so many expected. So women in the newsroom who had envisioned the first woman president teared up, right? They were crying in the Washington Post newsroom as it became 20, apparent 2016 would not be the year for the first female president. And they were crying also in the New York Times newsroom. And a new staff that had endured Trump's threats and insults faced the prospect of what we're in for four or eight more years of the same. Well, does the, does the news threaten or insult people? Uh, I mean, of course it does. The news has, has disdain for, for people who don't uh, share its values, right? Uh, the dominant news organizations are operated by people with a liberal left ideology, a liberal left hero system, and they tend to have contempt for those with a traditional value system. So one example of a traditional value system is that you believe that uh, marriage is only between one man and one woman. And if you hold that perspective, you'll be likely to be the recipient of a great deal of contempt from our ruling elites, including in the mainstream media. So uh, Marty Barron made one request of those who were then view of the Washington Post live webcast of its election coverage Show no emotion. <laughs> and a few days after the election, uh, Marty Barron was asked to speak to the staff. Many were in shock that uh, what they'd reported about Donald Trump had apparently been disregarded by the voters. There was a disconnect between the reality of what we saw and the reality of what they saw. And many journalists thought, what difference did our work make? So because journalists weren't able to sway the 2016 presidential election results, they were in shock and they were in grief. So they were looking for reassurance. I mean, what a bunch of snowflakes. I mean, they thought they could sway the election returns with their reporting. It doesn't sound terribly compatible with being neutral and striving for objectivity. And uh, Marty Barron told the owner, Jeff Bezos, that uh, Washington Post staff was suffering from PTSD because of the incessant attacks by Trump. Well, anyone who has attracted the ire of the mainstream media right, is going to be the subject of incessant attacks. There's no wider perspective here by Marty Barron that, uh, yeah, Donald Trump attacks the news media and the news media attacks Donald Trump. Right? Trump supporters attack the news media and the news media attacks Trump supporters. And I don't like you know, a lot of the vulgar and over-the-top and, frankly, false vilification of people, including the mainstream media, by Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters. I think a lot of it's over-the-top and 
and inappropriate and wrong, but the constant haranguing of uh, Donald Trump supporters by the mainstream media is frequently over the top as well. So Marty Barron complains that Trump has given the press a middle finger and that this is about to become a fist. But you don't think that when the news media decide on a consensus on a particular story, and they seem to inevitably do it, you get a news story such as Charlottesville or the rise of Donald Trump, and very quickly there's an emotional consensus on how this story should be covered that seems to dominate all of the elite media. You don't think that that is experienced by the opponents of this perspective as a middle finger executed by the mainstream media that becomes a fist? I mean, don't these journalists have any self-awareness? Don't they know how often their work has devastated lives? Uh, why are they seeking comfort if they are so vulnerable? Perhaps they should get a different job. Right? If getting attacked by Donald Trump gives you PTSD, probably should get a new career. And why do you worry about your work resonating with the public? I don't control your brain. I don't control your emotions. I don't control what you think of me. Right? Your reactions belong to you. They don't belong to me. Right? I am not going to get upset that I don't control you. I mean, how many American journalists have been murdered because of things Donald J. Trump has said? I cannot think of any. By contrast, we know that the mainstream media's promotion of Black Lives Matter right, has led to thousands of additional murders in the United States. It's called the Ferguson Effect, called the George Floyd Effect, and it's driven a significant increase in violent crime and, and traffic deaths in the United States. So Marty's staffers at the Washington Post are absolutely mystified that people would vote for Donald Trump. Why are they so mystified? Because nobody they know voted for Donald Trump. Right? Maybe Marty's kids at the Washington Post would benefit from a little bit of ideological diversity. The Post, as Marty Barron describes it, is monolithically on the left. And uh, Marty Barron describes Trump's Charlottesville remarks as vile. Right? What, what is so vile about these remarks? Trump said, you had very fine people on both sides. You had people there that were protesting the taking down of an important statute and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. And you had people, and I'm not talking about neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, they should be condemned totally, but many people in that group of the neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Like, why is that so vile? I mean, the, the Democratic Party and our, our ruling elite depends upon a fragmented American people, right? The Democratic coalition depends upon a group a group that has virtually nothing in common but loathing for a dominant white Christian America, right? It, it is a coalition of the fringe. And who stakes, stokes the hatred that maintains this coalition that loathes America's white Christian majority? In large part, it's the mainstream media. Marty Barron says, our general policy at the Post was to refrain from comment when a manic Donald Trump went on the warpath against us. Exceptions were made when Trump named individual reporters with the obviously malicious attempt of setting them up for harassment and physical threats. And I have no doubt that they were harassed and physically threatened. And I don't like most of what Trump did in this regard. But frequently, the mainstream media sets people up for identical harassment and physical threats. Right? We're operating out of different hero systems, and we will tend to support those who support our hero system. And we will inevitably try to create problems for people who oppose our hero system. Like, I don't like 
probably most of Donald Trump's tweets. I don't like his wild, baseless accusations. I think Trump deserves plenty of criticism for his petty, nasty, and false things that he says, such as denying the validity of the 2020 election. But I also don't like much of what the, the mainstream media does. In valuing trees for building, nature for food, friendship for conversation, technology to aid us, we're acknowledging that the world isn't external to us, but that we're part of it. As I've said in previous videos, we're not people looking out at nature, but we are nature reflecting on itself. We need a way of valuing things, and thinking about that is where philosophy often comes in. Because without a value system, we have no basis for acting, for choosing, for thinking, and valuing, in its very definition, is attachment. In valuing food, we acknowledge that we need it, that we- Right, this is a terrific video called uh, Stoicism's Major Flaw. Heard a good Durant podcast here discrediting the US legal system to remove Trump. The system has been dragged into this, into this party political battle. It is terrible in that respect. And of course, beyond anything, everything else, you are now setting up a scenario next year for the most bitterly fought election that there has ever been in the history of the United States, going all the way back to the elections that took place on the eve of the Civil War. And, you know, I don't say that lightly, but I mean, I, I, I don't say that lightly at all. But I mean, I think that that is actually, again, an emerging consensus, which is being shared by more and more people. Just let the election happen. If it results in Donald Trump getting elected president, well, you deal with that then. But that is how the United States is supposed to work. All these strange and weird and wonderful legal devices, all that they're doing is that they're discrediting the legal system and they're de deepening the partisan divide in the United States. And as Edward Luce said, they're making people angry. Yeah, I mean, you know, you deal with it when Trump becomes president, if Trump becomes president. You know, if Trump then, becomes but, president. You know, we saw the first... We saw the first four years of, of Trump's presidency and how they dealt with it, Russiagate and, and the phone call with, with Zelensky and all that nonsense. And you look at where it led to, you know, the, the whole Russiagate thing. You could make the argument, and we have made the argument, that the Russiagate lie has actually led to, or at least contributed significantly to the conflict we now have in Ukraine, this proxy war between the United States and Russia. So, I mean, this, this Trump derangement syndrome, it's, it's, it's fun at times to joke around about it uh, when you're discussing it, but it is very destructive uh, and very dangerous uh, for the world and, and for the United States because... This, this proxy war with, with Russia has led to, to much of the, uh, of the U.S.'s power uh, diminishing around the world. So, I mean, I guess my question is, is even if Trump was to be, become president, they're, they're, they're never going to stop. But I mean, they, the deep state, the establishment, uh, the permanent state, they're never going to stop uh, going after Trump and effectively destroying uh, the United States. Why, why do they, why do, what is it about Trump that drives them so crazy, that makes them so destructive that they're actually inflicting harm on themselves? Because when you take a step back and look at Trump's first four years, he didn't really do anything that was that radical or malicious to the permanent state. I mean, he employed quite a, quite a few of them, Bolton and McMasters and Pompeo and Esper. I mean, Nikki Haley. What, what is it about, about Trump that makes him so, so crazy? Is it because he defeated Queen Hillary? Yeah. Is, that, is that reason to destroy your entire country because yes. he defeated Hillary Clinton, really? Yes, I, I think that there are two basic reasons for this. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, it's always very difficult to give an explanation on something which I, I find like you, I think, ultimately impossible to understand, you know, why Trump derangement syndrome exists to the extent that it does, given that there is nothing about Trump's past or his conduct as president that really justifies it to anything like the extent that, you know, it exists. I think that there are two basic reasons, and I, I, I want to just quickly touch on these. I've spoken about them before. The first, actually, I think it's three reasons. The first was that he did defeat. 
Hillary Clinton. And you see, he did that as an amateur in a political system which is run by professionals. Now, as someone who has been a professional myself, I can tell you that nothing riles a professional so much as being beaten at one's own work by an amateur. It is right, so I, I was interview, interviewed by numerous mainstream media journalists, uh, did, did profiles of me, and inevitably their main area of critique was that as a blogger, I did not live up to the standards of of journalism and only part of what I was doing was was journalism like journalism is not the only way to communicate so part of what I've done on on my blog and you know on my live streaming has a, an element of reporting and it also has an element of sharing opinions and an element of just carrying on a conversation and making jokes but uh, journalists would just see what I was doing strictly through the prism of journalism and would cr critique my work on that basis, and it drove them crazy as I was breaking numerous stories that they then had to follow up on, such as that the marriage of the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, Antonio Villaraigosa, back in early 2007, I broke the news that his marriage was over, came the dominant story in L.A. as the mayor was carrying on an affair with a Spanish-language TV newsreader, and uh, that became the number one story in California that year, and it infuriated them that they had to you know, follow on the work of a blogger, right? It made them mad that uh, I didn't didn't follow by their rules. It's absolutely infuriating. I mean, it will have made their head explode that this man who came from nowhere, who's never held elected office, who's hardly been involved in politics in the past, should come along, take on the entire system and win. I mean, that that is something that they don't understand, they don't like. It scares them. They see the connection that he has with the American people, the way he's able to work crowds, something that they can't do, and it infuriates them, and it scares them. The second is what he actually said, back in 2015, which first attracted people's attention to him. He talked about the swamp. He talked about draining the swamp. He talked all about those things. Well, you only have to look at some of the cases that are going on in Washington at the moment. People like Bob Menendez, uh, uh, the son of a certain person who holds the highest elective office, all of these sort of cases to see that Trump actually had a point. And of course, again, the entire political class knows that and their party to a certain extent or to a great extent to all of these things. And again, that will have both frightened and scared them. And then last but not least, there is the overarching issue, which you touched on, which is, yes, it did massively deteriorate relations with Russia. Russia did do that. But bear in mind that hostility to Russia was already there hardwired in the system. And here you can have somebody coming along and say, this is a mistake. <laughs> We've got to reverse it. And he wins the highest office planning to do that very thing. And again, that threatens the deep state's control over foreign policy. So again, you know, you can see all of these reasons. Now, they're not sufficient in themselves, even taken together. There is something. Right. So there's a theme here, along with the title text for today's show, The Blogosphere and Its Enemies, The Case of Oophorectomy. Right. That's the uh, removal of you know, a woman's uh, ovaries. And many female bloggers made the point that this was an absolute disaster. But the expert says, oh, it's, it's a good thing to do. So the, the blogosphere and the blogosphere now, live streaming, is generally loathed and generally feared by the press, by elites, by expert opinion makers, and by representatives of authority generally. I remember I went to one Orthodox synagogue and the rabbi eventually gave me an ultimatum. I either had to make him the editor of my blog or I had to leave the synagogue. And so I chose to leave the synagogue. So there is a long tradition among elites, going back to Compton, Carl Pierce, and Walter Lippmann, that uncontrolled public discussion is intellectual anarchy. It's the, just the rantings of the ignorant. 
right? That, uh, you know, the professional journalists and the experts, they're responsible to the facts, but these controls don't exist for bloggers or vloggers and people who, who comment on what we do. So they want, the experts want public discussion controlled, right? They fear intellectual anarchy, right? They want a dictatorship of experts rather than a dictatorship of idiots. So blog commentary is frequently much wiser, much profound, more profound than the commentary of experts, and frequently it is not. But you can't make any blanket decision whether it comes in the context of a blog or the New York Times, right? You often find on blogs and live streams, right, the firsthand experiences of people that contradicts the claims of experts and authorities, right? Blog commentators and live stream commentators often have specialized knowledge and experience that uh, the experts do not. And sometimes... You know, the, the blogs are right and the, the doctors are wrong, right? Blogs and, and live streams have produced an opportunity for a response to our ruling elites, right? We have a forum for responding to doctors and to the dominant liberal left in power. We have an opportunity to challenge expertise, right? Now, according to our dominant elites, the rise of live streams and blogs and vlogs Right, this degrades the public discourse, that the gold standard from their perspective of public discourse is the professional work of journalists and commentators who you know, operate by elite rules. And they only allow in you know, a certain section of comments. And they fear that things like the live stream and the blog distracts the unwary consumer of opinion and fact with false scurrilous, inflammatory, and ideologically laden material. And that the din of the live stream and the blog right, threatens the quality of public discourse and has actively degraded it, has diminished the role of the professional channels of public opinion formation and creation. So about well, 15 years ago, you had this widespread fear on the part of professional journalists that you know, blogs were going to destroy the mainstream media. Strange about this um, obsession with Trump. But, you know, I'm not going to delve into psychology. I'm not a psychologist. So I just note the fact that it exists and it, it is driving people to take these utterly bizarre decisions. But you're absolutely correct in what you said. I mean, we, one of the reasons why we have a crisis in Ukraine now is precisely because um, the whole debate about Russia in the West has been poisoned by Russiagate. And in fact, it isn't just relations with Russia because the entire world knows that instead of the United States conducting its foreign policy in an orderly and efficient way, uh, in effect, it's paralysed by its own internal difficulties, its own internal arguments, and by this extraordinary campaign that the permanent state in the United States insists on conducting against the country's most popular politician. So, you know, the world can see that. Xi Jinping can see that. Putin, of course, can see that. Uh, Modi in India can see that. And that makes them, uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia can see it. Netanyahu in Israel can see that. And that makes them very, very careful about getting too close to the United States at this time. So, All right, a uh, quick uh, burst from Decoding the Gurus, talking about Andrew Huberman, who's a professor at Stanford University. To put it another way, they're, they're very good at making sure they get bang for their bunk. And it, it costs money to vaccinate kids and get something. They, they are not. An evening's research or just looking up his Wikipedia page would reveal that information to you. So, mm. 
Yeah, yeah, no, true, true. That's part of the course <laughs> in podcast, Stan. <laughs> yes, it is. But the, the good point is that there was the crucial reference, right, about him being debunked and fraud being involved, which is important. But here's a bit where I picked up a slight concern. So this this was, as they discussed, the one of the issues presented by Wakefield was, you know, the preservatives that are in vaccines. This could be connected to thimerosal concerns, right, in the U.S., and in talking about that issue, listen to this. And so the, the, the good news is at this point, there have been multiple, multiple studies that haven't shown a correlation between, you know, vaccines and autism. I do believe the preservatives have been changed as a result. So that's something we should check um, that, you know, that might be something where, you know, there's been a public health change on preservatives that are in vaccines. That's um, interesting in its own right. I mean, we don't want to cause alarm, um, but that's that's interesting, you know, that that in this data fraud case, it might have cued people to the idea that certain things might have been um needing change, even though it wasn't the specific issue that this uh, this fraudulent researcher was or focused on. the change was made to make sure people would vaccinate their children, right? Like, so this is something I that I think we should have lots of caveats here, like, you know, post the post the studies, like, make sure that what we're saying is accurate, right? But I, but I think that my concern is that we've spent, you know, so the good news is that, you know, the like every single study that I'm aware of does not show a relationship between vaccination and autism, right? Yeah. So the lady that whom I'm speaking to is being very responsible. Karen, Parker, she, Parker. Dr. Parker, she's doing a great job in <laughs> leaping in there and cutting off Huberman because Huberman leaps upon that point that something was changed in childhood vaccines since the MMR vaccine fraud fraudulent study by Wakefield. And Huberman presents that as well. Maybe it got them thinking that it was dangerous to have these preservatives and vaccines, which of course is the Marisol, which is the thing that the anti-vaxxers were all freaked out about. And uh, as you just reminded me earlier, that thing was changed, but and it was in response to the anti-vax campaigners who were freaked out about it, despite there being absolutely no evidence whatsoever that it was doing any harm. And now Huberman takes that as kind of a, an implication that, you know, maybe there was, maybe it drew attention to some genuine concerns there. It's, yeah, so he doesn't seem to know, again, like there's a lack of awareness about the thimerosal case, but, but also the wrong inference to jump in that like if people change something in response to like a campaign like that, it indicates that there was a problem and like, no, that's the wrong inference as the guest correctly indicates. And then they stress that the studies didn't support that. But the anti-vax community initially said, if you remove thimerosal, you're going to see autism rates drop. You're going to see, you know, a whole bunch of things change and it didn't happen. And they then didn't at all change their claim. They just moved on to another one because that's what the anti-vax <laughs> Because they're anti-vaxxers. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Okay, back to this terrific uh, Stephen Turner essay, which I link in the video description here, the blogosphere and its enemies. So the experts and their dominant elite don't like things like the blogosphere and live streams because they are open to anyone, but they essentially have you know few or no filters, and they allow attacks on expertise and on experts and even false and misleading attacks, and they allow for assertions that conflict with expert knowledge. So official announcements are frequently tailored to blogosphere and vlogosphere responses. And among the fears cited by the critics of the blogosphere uh, are that uh, consumers are unable to sort through this collection of falsehoods and misleading commentary, that consumers are prone to considering it as evidence against or skepticism about genuine expertise. And this undermines the kind of deference to expertise, the kind of deference to fact, the deference to elite rule. Right, that is essential to democratic discussion and forces the discussion of questions that are properly subject to expert knowledge into the fact-free arena of ranting, speculation, and ignorant assertions characteristic of the blogosphere. And there are often immoderate opinions on the web. But the blogosphere also tends to undermine dominant voices. Right? The web perhaps produces moderation as a result of this very tumult of voices that experts consider so disconcerting. Maybe we are getting with live streams and blogs a deepening of the genuine public sphere rather than its nemesis. 
right? So there's a, a case to be made against live streams and blogs and a case to be made for them. So the case for deference to expertise is strong. Experts speak as experts of a particular kind than the limitations of accepted knowledge in their group, right? There are no experts without a group behind them confirming them as experts, right? You don't get to have experts, practically speaking, that operate outside of the their group's consensus. If they're operating outside their group's consensus, they are no longer considered experts. So experts are constrained. So journalists can speak authoritatively because they are concerned for their reputation with their peers. And their role is largely to translate the statements of experts into authoritative statements for the public. And so for our dominant elite, deference to expertise is not only healthy, but it's necessary for democracy. Walter Lippmann said, it is intolerable and unworkable fiction that each of us must acquire a competent opinion about public affairs. Said he seeks intelligence bureaus which can tell people that relevant issues have been considered. Right, the common interests largely elude public opinion entirely, can be managed only by a very specialized expert class. Then you see with discussions of climate change, right, there is explicit hostility to the reasoning capacities of regular people, the general public, and even assertions that we need to curtail or ignore public opinion and tamp down on democratic discussion, even eliminating it Maybe this is necessary to save the planet. So here's one argument. The Chinese decision on shopping bags, banning them, is authoritarian. Contrast with the voluntary, non-effective solutions put forward in most Western democracies. We are going to have to look at how authoritarian decisions based on consensus science can be implemented to contain greenhouse emissions. We do not act urgently. We may find we have chosen total liberty rather than life. So this is an opinion from 2008. Another commentator says... Liberal democracy as a system is incapable of dealing with the crisis of climate change and ought therefore to be abandoned in favor of an authoritarian regime guided by the consensus of science. So our dominant elites do not like you know, the kind of you know, wide open discussion that we have on this very channel. Yeah. So the, <laughs> this, is, this is why anti-vaxxer is a pejorative term. And it's not just, oh, somebody has legitimate questions um, about something. It's because it's immune. They are immune to evidence. They're ideologically fixated. And as you say, if you conclusively dispatch one of their arguments, like a conspiracy theorist, they'll simply switch to an alternative one. Now, the guest, Karen Parker, also, again, has a nice section where she, she kind of summarizes the state of the current evidence, and I think she does it well. So she says this. And so I think that most scientists and medical doctors that I know that are part of like the, you know, standard biomedical research community do not believe that vaccines cause autism. They vaccinate their own children. You know, they recommend vaccinations to other people's children. Um, and, and so I think that's where we are. Correct. <laughs> it's, it's, it's standard knowledge amongst the pediatricians and mainstream doctors that vaccines do not cause autism. The evidence is not there. And the majority of medical doctors and pediatricians and so on all recommend that people are vaccinated according to the standard schedule. Good yeah. job, Karen Parker. That's correct. Yes. Yep. So after that is referenced, Huberman wants to, uh, he presents it as raising the concerns of some in his audience. So let's hear what some of those concerns might be. You know, could, could I just ask a question? Yeah. Um, uh, and I feel more than obligated to do this because I, th I don't, you know, I think I have a pretty good finger on the pulse of the listenership of this podcast, but I think there's a range of, of stances on this um, where some people um, have a lot of trust in the standard medical establishment. Others have less right. trust in the standard medical establishment. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't try and represent um, yeah. all, all those sides. Um, and, you know, one thing that I've heard is that 
over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of vaccinations that kids get. And I don't know if that's true, but when we say vaccinations, we could be talking about, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, right. um, polio. Um, we could also be talking about measles, mumps, rubella, polio, flu shots every year, right. rabies vaccine, tetanus vaccine, HPV. you know, HP, HPV, right? With one that wasn't even available when I was in, in college, right. you know, as a, everyone in college was, was well aware there wasn't an HPV vaccine, um, didn't change people's behavior a whole lot. But, um, you know, there's, there's a vaccine, there's multiple vaccines, and then there's, you know, all the vaccines, yeah. right? Mm. So raising a concern that maybe there's too many vaccines. Um, yeah. And, you know, he mentions he hasn't, you know, he doesn't know if there are too many, but he's, a lot of people are mentioning this, Matt. And, you know, again, I feel like uh, independent research from somebody competent might be able to locate this information relatively quickly. I find, for example, a post on Vaxopedia by Vincent Ionelli that discusses the vaccine schedule in the US from the 1940s to 2019. And to the presentation of the anti-vax community that Huberman is discussing there, there hasn't been this dramatic increase in the amount of vaccines that people take. And there's a claim that kids get 72 doses of vaccines now. And that, that post goes into detail that essentially they're getting 13 vaccines that protect them from 16 vaccine-preventable diseases. And these are all you know diseases that you don't want, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis, diphtheria, the influenza vaccine, and, and so on is there. So Huberman, is, he frames it as he's, going to raise a concern from his audience no he doesn't know if it's valid or not you know there's there's no no real clear way to to determine that but in so doing he's like it sounds a bit like he is on board with this position because he talks about okay back to stephen turner and his conclusion in this essay on the blogosphere and its enemies so experts acquire their information and they aggregate it in their own ways and then they present the results to the public and this construction of expert opinion is not a sanitized procedure that inevitably generates truth, right? Simply a different procedure of aggregating information and selecting opinion, and it has its own cognitive biases. And this method can be corrected and moderated by free discussion in which the biases and interests of the participants, including the experts, are open subjects. So you have open discussion, which has its own cognitive biases, but to reject the kinds of information that appear in the unsanitized discussions found in the blogosphere is to reject a potential corrective to expert error. Right? Much of the blog commentary is reflexive. It's concerned with the subject of cognitive bias. The experts complain about the biases of testimony, and they claim that satisfied patients don't write on blogs. But the patients and the counter-expert groups complain about conflicts of interest, refusals to discuss or to consider the experiences of the patients and the arrogance of physicians and the imperviousness of medical practice to evidence. Right? The physicians complain that the complainers are not representative, but the, that they're at two sides responding to one another means that one cannot read these websites and blogs without recognizing that there are serious issues with these procedures. Right? There, there are problems with just uh, bowing down to expertise. Right? Because experts have their own incentives. Right? They have their own cognitive biases. Right? In, in the blogosphere and the blogosphere, there are fewer institutional pressures to conform. People can comment on a live stream or a blog to agree or to disagree or to add something. And often the information they add is based on personal experience that ha is its own kind of evidence. The blogosphere is not always right. It has its own biases but it is a means of challenging and moderating expert opinion by getting different information and using you know, different processes to gather and compare it. But, you know, when I was 
young, you know, we didn't get all these like vaccinations like people do now. And yeah, yeah. like I've, I've seen similar spurious claims, for instance, that Americans, like North Americans, um, get vastly higher number of vaccines than people elsewhere in the world. And again, a little bit of fact checking, you could you could see that it's it's just simply not true. Yeah, he frames it in an interesting way, which is that he's got a moral obligation to represent the 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 spectrum of opinion amongst his audience. Now he does, I'm sure, have a strong uh, anti-vax, natural health woo, anti-conventional medicine, a- anti-conventional yeah, medical authorities segment in, in his listenership. But that shouldn't mean that he needs to represent that and, and be their spokesperson. Like, it's like the car driving the horse. Like, isn't that like, like explicit audience capture? Like, he's meant to be an expert. Isn't it? If he's got that cohort in his listeners, wouldn't the responsible response be to attempt to, uh, you know, use Correct his, misunderstandings? His heart- yeah, especially given that they trust him and he could correct their misunderstandings and do some real good. Right, but so here he's, you could say that he's doing this by bringing this point up to an, an expert, right? Although Weller, the Karen Parker is, you know, the correct person to discuss the childhood, vac- childhood vaccination schedule. That, that would be a concern. But it, there's a bit more to this, Matt, that, where it continues on. So this is more of Huberman kind of indicating, you know, wh- why there are concerns around this, topic, uh, around this topic and how far he shares them. And I think that one of the concerns that I hear about um, is it the idea that, okay, there's some critical vaccines, but then which ones are perhaps less critical, if any? Um, and these are the kinds of discussions that are starting to surface yeah. um, and that, you know, have parents and potential parents, you know, rightfully thinking about this right. stuff. And, and no one really knows where to get the information. But like, I'm, I, I've tried and I can't find a pediatrician that says, hey, listen, these, but not those. Or you can certainly find board certified physicians that say many and certain board certified physicians that say none, you actually can find those. Um, the none category tend to hide themselves a little bit more than others for obvious reasons, but it's hard to get a sense of like which, which vaccines are critical and which ones aren't if you're a parent and you're not versed in this stuff. Right. And so you could imagine that like people are, you know, kids are taking many more vaccines and only some of those are critical and maybe all of them are critical. Well, I think, I guess the way I would maybe turn it on its head is that, you know, because of this, this study that did in some ways so much harm, right? Like we the spent, study. we spent, I, I don't even want to hazard a guess about how much money worldwide went into studying, you know, the, the you know, vaccines and autism based on a fraudulent data, right? Like that's to me a real tragedy. Because- but at the time they didn't know it was fraudulent. No. Yeah, it's a it's a frustrating framing, isn't it? Because it sounds superficially like a like a reasonable position. Oh, there's there's a lot of vaccines. Some people say we shouldn't be taking any. Some people say we should take all of those vaccines. You know, tetanus as well as diphtheria, as as well as measles, mumps, and rubella. But surely the middle ground, the reasonable position, is just to take some of them, right, Chris? <laughs> like it's um yeah um like the, yeah, the framing so- the framing implies that these concerns are reasonable. There's a lot of people talking. A lot of people are asking reasonable questions about which vaccines really should you be getting and which are just optional. And the answer, of course, is that they're all. All of the scheduled vaccines, beneficial. Yeah, that's why they're on the schedule, right? And there yeah, isn't, yeah. they weren't on the schedule until they were found to be overall safe and beneficial and to far outweigh any risks from side effects, right? That, that's why yeah. they're there. Yes, <laughs> like, like it costs money. Like the Australian government is, is remarkably miserly when it comes to uh, health funding, right? It's their, I mean, to put it another way, they're, they're very good at making sure they get bang for their bank. And it, it costs money <laughs> to vaccinate kids to get something. They, they are not going to be recommending and rolling out and distributing useless vaccines. You know, th- there are... There are edge cases like the seasonal flu vaccine, right? Which, you know, are, you know, and actually you have to pay for that yourself if you want it in Australia, because, you know, in terms of bang for buck, it's, it, it probably is, you know, worth it. Um, but, you know, because it's marginal, they, the, the government will refuse to pay for it. So, Okay, let's uh, leave it there. Got to get ready for some football. Talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.